Hello, everyone. A warm welcome back to Intersections, where we can all come together from the paths that we are taking in life and at work to create an opportunity for reflection, for a pursuit of what it takes to get to our full potential, both as individuals and as communities. And today, I have the tremendous pleasure to have in our midst someone who has been an exemplar for the kinds of qualities that I teach in my class on personal leadership and success at Columbia and in our executive programs at the Mentora Institute. Someone who is really a light in a period of tremendous turmoil that we're all facing in society, where, you know, in many ways, for very legitimate reasons, many of us are challenging some of the conventions and values and practices of the past. But in creating that challenge, there are also divisions that are starting to get fermented. Divisions across communities, across viewpoints, across ideologies. So how do we create a united front? How do we really foster a sense of family in all of humanity? When in fact, in pursuing that very quest of seeking to really fight for a more equal world, a more just world, we're also finding that it's leading to more and more divisions, emotional turmoil, and what have you. So let me introduce our guest speaker to all of you. Matthew Stevenson is, in fact, one of my former students at Columbia Business School. And it is there in the classroom that I first had contact with him. I'm going to share what happened there in just a minute. But before I do that, let me just tell you a little bit more about his background. Matthew's got a bachelor's degree in economics and mathematics from Florida. He has uh, qualified to be a CFA, chartered accountant. He has an MBA from Columbia, which is where his path and mine crossed. And then today, he is an investment analyst at T. Rowe Price. And in my recent newsletter, I had this article on creating an open letter to America, where I was reflecting on some of these recent movements, like the anti-racism movement. And I talked about how we need more Matthew Stevensons. And the reason for that is because of the tremendous force that Matthew has been in bringing a certain healing across these divisions. In particular, Matthew, when he was in college, encountered Derek Black, who at that time was part of the white nationalist movement. Derek Black encounters Matthew Stevenson in college. That story, I'm going to ask Matthew to share a little bit more about very soon. Along the way, they started to make headlines. A white supremacist path towards enlightenment on race and tolerance. Former friendship helps Derek Black move beyond hate and beyond white nationalism. How a star, rising star of white nationalism broke free from the movement. Uh, there was a book that was then written by a Washington Post um, you know, journalist who wrote an article earlier. And then this book that documents how Derek was able to come out from this hatred based on this kind of journey that he made, catalyzed by Matthew Stevenson. Let's bring Matthew Stevenson in our midst and get this conversation going. Matthew, warm welcome to you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. You're coming into this conversation at a really central hour, both central to, I think, the journey that we're making in this country and in humanity at large, as well as in my own work. Because as you know, you know, I, I like to look at kind of how each of us can rise to our fullest potential. And as I see the um, journey, the anti-racism movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, the LGBTQ movement, I mean, there are so many movements out there that are seeking to really do a lot of good in how they're kind of raising their hand and saying, hey, guys, there are a few things we haven't been talking about actively in the world. 
but they need to be made public. They need to be shared. They need to be protested. They need to be reformed. And at the same time, you know, how do we do it in a way where it's not just um, imposed on people as like authoritative kind of commands, but it's something where their hearts and minds are changed from within. Because if those hearts and minds are not changed from within, then is society authentically changing or is it just trying to hide itself under the guise of something else, right? So um, your path, your approach to reform has been one which is um, that way just so much more likely to lead to incredible sustained change. And yet your path is one which is hard. It's, it's not easy. Uh, and so what I want to do today is really understand your path understand where it comes from, have you share stories and examples to bring it to life for us with the hope and aspiration that any or all of us could walk away from this conversation with a little bit of greater conviction, a little bit of greater clarity and some toolkit that we can use when we encounter these divisions in our own careers and lives. So thank you again, Matthew, for joining us. And let me just start with like um, a question to you about this story, the story between you and Derek Black, and then we will Move, move beyond it to talk about sort of the larger philosophy that guides you in this area. Can you, can you talk about that moment when you are in college and you first heard of Derek Black? Sure. So Derek and I started at a very small liberal arts school at the same time. There were about 800 students in the entire school across all four years. So to some extent, everybody knew everybody because it was so small. And not only that, Derek lived right downstairs from me in the dormitory because the dormitory doors actually opened to the outside, it wasn't long hallways or something like that, I could see his front door every time I opened my door. And I should add that at this point, I had absolutely no idea about his background or his ideology or political views. And the first time we really connected was, was not about politics or race or religion or anything like that. It was actually about music. He was and still is a very talented guitar player. And he used to sometimes sit in common area spaces of the dorms and play old country and western songs in his guitar. I like that kind of music, so sometimes I would sing along poorly to the songs he would play. And we got to know each other a little bit that way. We weren't close, but we got to know each other. We were in a class together, a history class, and shared notes. So we had a few interactions without me ever having any idea about his worldview. Yeah, and so when did this kind of just regular dynamic start to shift into something a lot more significant in terms of who he was and what he meant to your college community and how people in the college were kind of reacting to his presence. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, in the fall semester of our first year at the school, not only did I not have any idea, but no one at the school had any idea about his views because he was very intentionally keeping them hidden for reasons you can probably guess. His spring semester, the second semester, he actually studied abroad in Germany. And while he was there, another student at the school was researching white nationalism and stumbled upon his picture. Now, Derek, as you saw, has long red hair, kind of stands out in the crowd, and everyone sort of knew everyone at the school. And so the student very quickly put two and two together and realized that Derek Black was none other than this guy in the photographs who was being groomed to be the next leader in the white nationalist movement. And that was a complete shock not only to me, but to everyone at the school. The school was generally a very liberal place and very uh, grounded in ideas of social justice and so on. The notion that someone was a student there and had been a student there without people even realizing it, promoting this kind of an ideology of hatred and separatism came as a, a total shock. 
and was virtually the only topic of campus gossip for quite a while. Now, Derek, as I mentioned, was studying abroad and in some sense couldn't respond when that happened because he was in Europe. But there was a very open question of whether he'd even come back because he was trying to keep it secret when he was there. It, he'd been exposed. He was now something of a pariah on the, uh, at the school on the campus. So at first, I didn't even know if he was going to come back to the school or maybe transfer or do something else. In fact, I, I knew several people who had been planning to be roommates with him in that coming fall semester. And around the time the semester was about to start, they told me that he was no longer going to be rooming with them. And I wasn't sure exactly what was going on. I wasn't sure if it was because he was no longer going to be attending the school. I wasn't sure if he felt unsafe living on campus because a lot of people were frankly very upset with him or, or, or what the background of the story was. I didn't know him well. I wasn't close friends with him, but I did have his phone number because of our prior interactions. Uh, so I asked him if he needed a place to stay. Didn't want him to be homeless. But he told me he'd, he'd found a place near the campus, off campus, safely enough off campus where he felt like he could live without being harassed. And I started thinking about how our lives were so totally different. My, my life has been shaped dramatically by my parents. I don't think I would have many of the views that I have today without the influence of my parents. And conversely, if I had had his parents, who are leaders in the white nationalist world, his father ran the Klan at one point and founded a website called Stormfront, which is the largest and certainly the first white nationalist website. His mother used to be married to a guy named David Duke, who is probably the most famous racist in America. David Duke was also Derek's godfather, and the family's very close. Growing up in that kind of an environment, it could very easily see how I would have been shaped, and I could imagine how Derek might have been shaped, largely involuntarily, just because you're surrounded by that all the time, by people who you love and care about. They're your family, after all, even if they may express views, ideologies that we find abhorrent. And I was in an interesting position because at the school, like I said, it was a very small school. I was the only observant Jew there. And I had been hosting dinners every Friday night, pretty much since I arrived at the school, for Shabbat. Shabbat is Sabbath. And it was open to anyone who wanted to come. Jewish, not Jewish, observant, not, you know, atheist. Whoever wanted to come was more than welcome. I had built this from... Originally, it was just myself, then myself and a close friend. And eventually, maybe eight, nine people could be coming on a weekly basis. Doesn't seem like a lot, but at the time, it felt like a pretty big accomplishment. And I had this thing going, and I thought to myself, you know, this may be the only time that Derek has a chance to actually interact with some of the groups of people that his ideology despises on a personal level. Growing up in that environment with his parents, I, he probably didn't have a lot of black people coming over to the house. Probably didn't have a lot of Jewish people coming over to the house. And not only that, but once he graduates, he's going to be back and meshed in that world because he was taking a very active role in, in leading that world and promoting those ideas. So he would be back in that environment and would probably never have another opportunity to form personal bonds with these kinds of people, Jews, people of color, and so on. And so together with a friend of mine, Moshe Ash, we decided to invite Derek to join us for one of those Shabbat dinners. The other people who were coming to those dinners were informed ahead of time didn't want a bit of a surprise to have uh, white nationalists show up unexpectedly. And many of them were unhappy with, with that. They felt like I could just choose. It was either going to be them or him. And if he was going to come, they would just as soon stay home. But I felt like the opportunity was, in many ways, too good to pass up. That it was uh, an opportunity to maybe change, you know, influence someone's life in a very positive direction. 
and maybe not just one person, but a, a whole movement of people who he's influencing in turn. And so I informed that they're, they're welcome to come whenever they want. They're always welcome back, but I'm going to do what I think is right and invite Derek to come. So Derek started coming. He came not only one week, but the next week and the following week and uh, came for about two years. Wow. Matthew, there's so much um, in your comments there about that leap of um, heart and faith that you made in um, actually getting more curious, more invested, more more respectful about yes. you know, his roots and where he's coming from and to see possibilities in, in evolving you know, his thinking about something to see the power of uh, bringing him in contact with the very people that uh, his movement has sought to diminish. So um, what was your plan at that time? Like, did you have like a vision for what was going to happen at those dinners? What conversations were going to occur with him? And was there a clear sort of uh, intention to want to seek to sort of say like reform his thinking? So I would say that first of all, there was no intention to reform someone's thinking because I think that gives me way too much agency. At the end of the day, if a person wants to change, it's up to them. No one can force someone else to think differently or transform in any way. And so the most I could hope for, I think, would be to maybe be a channel to help Derek to change. But it certainly wasn't a case where I was trying to bamboozle him or, 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 or trick him or, or try to get him to abandon his prior ideology by, by just powers of persuasion. In particular, you asked about topics of conversation. Before he came to that first Shabbat dinner, I told all the prospective attendees that there was to be no broaching of the topic of white nationalism. I didn't want people to bring up race, religion, hate, etc. Because Derek has set his entire life up to that point defending his ideology. None of us have spent our entire lives attacking that ideology. There's no five-second soundbite that would cause Derek to abandon his very, very firmly held views. Just like I'm sure that you have many views that may not be shared by everyone, but there's nothing I can say in two sentences or two minutes or even two hours that would cause you to throw that out the window. And not only that, I felt like if people started going down that route, confronting him about his views, that he would put up his armor, become very defensive, maybe walk out the room, and never come back. And then the opportunity to form human connections would be gone and possibly gone forever. And so for the two years that he was coming to these dinners week after week, and, and I could add that we spent a lot of time together over time outside of those dinners as well, we never once broached the topic of white nationalism. So then how uh, is it that taking this path of what I would call non-attachment, <laughs> non-attachment to the outcome, just uh, creating the conditions where you just fell through the human connection, it sounds like, like good things are going to happen. How is it that uh, we end up in this epic place where today he is um, looking at the world through such a different lens? When were the first um, kind of like sparks that you saw of uh, him starting to make a shift in his thinking? So I think there's two parts to that question and I'll answer them in turn. The first part about non-attachment, I, I think that there's a parable that I heard a lot growing up and that stuck with me and I thought about a lot even at that time. And the parable goes that there was a once a rich prince and he was born into a palace, and the palace had all sorts of pleasures, anything you could think of. And in the front of the palace, there was an enormous boulder. And over time, the prince gets a little older, and as often happens, he slowly starts to find some of these physical pleasures a little less satisfying than he once did. He starts to wonder if there's something more he should be doing with his life. So he prays, and much to his surprise, God answers him. He asks God, what should I be doing with my life? He says, your job is to push that boulder. And of course, how often... 
many people pray, but it's not so often that we have God speaking right back to us. So he's so excited. He goes out and he pushes and he pushes and sweat is dripping from his brow and he's so enthusiastic. But of course, the boulder is an enormous boulder and he's a normal person. The boulder doesn't move. And the next day, he gets up. First thing he does, he runs and he pushes as much as he possibly can. And he's so excited. But again, the boulder doesn't move. And slowly, gradually, over time, his enthusiasm wanes until eventually he wakes up in the morning, he puts his pinky on the boulder, then he goes about whatever pleasures he was going to do the day anyway. As things go, eventually, the prince gets old and he passes away, and he reaches the upper worlds, and God tells him, you fail. And the prince says, what do you mean? I pushed that boulder so many hours, and it didn't budge even an inch. And God says, I never told you to move the rock, I told you to push the rock. I move the rock. So I think that you cannot be too attached to whether my actions are the ones that cause some consequence. Maybe my actions don't see a consequence, but because of the effort that I put in, someone else, maybe across the world, has a transformation. So there's no wasted energy as long as you are really coming at it from the right place. And then the second piece... By the way, Matthew, is that very central to Jewish thought? I would say it's very central to Kabbalistic thought, Jewish thought. Yeah, I think so. I'm sure that everyone is entitled to their own... You know, you have two Jews and three opinions. But I grew up in the Kabbalah Center and very grounded in those teachings. And that was something that I felt very strongly then. And it's something I continue to feel strongly now. And I would say that I would feel strongly about that even if the story had a different ending. Even if the story didn't end with Eric leaving the white nationalist movement, I wouldn't regret what I did. Yeah, yeah. I, I asked that because um, it strikes such a great chord with, um, you know, the Hindu faith that I sort of uh, have uh, yes. know, grown up in. I've seen my Christian friends also talk a lot about kind of like the same idea. Uh, you sow the seeds, but you don't sort of really obsess with what fruits the tree bears. That's that's up to a higher power sure. you know, and like give shape and form to. It's powerful when you find these um, these uh, commonalities, right? This common ground that uh, a lot of the great faiths and traditions have kind of stood on. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. Uh, let's keep going with your, with your story. You know, you, you hit an amazing topic, which is just the commonalities between human beings. I think that it sometimes shocks people that Derek and I were able to have conversations about topics outside of white nationalism. And I will admit that the first time you came over, it was probably a little awkward because he, neither of us knew for sure what to expect. Enormous shared interests in music and history and religion. We had, we're both very family oriented. So in many ways, we, we had a lot in common. Of course, we had one very big difference. We don't, shouldn't minimize that, but it was, was enough in common to be able to form human connections as opposed to just being a, a casual acquaintances into perpetuity. Wonderful. So um, I'm hearing the first step of this journey of transformation for Derek was merely seeing himself welcomed in this community and uh, having him start to form these human connections and find sort of all kinds of common grounds. And, and, I, and I think that it's critical to my thinking that everyone is entitled to human dignity, even someone who is endorsing and supporting horrible ideology. And I don't want to mince any words and leave some doubt about where I stand. No, I think white nationalism is a very destructive ideology. But the people supporting that ideology are human beings, just like us. And, you know, I think one challenge that often we have in schools is we'll teach students about periods in history that feature horrible behavior by human beings, the Nazi regime, for example. And the students leave with the message too often that the reason that the Nazis did that were that the Nazis were horrible people, that they were almost monsters. And we're not surprised that monsters do horrible things. They're monsters. 
If you watch Lord of the Rings, you're not surprised that the orcs aren't such nice people. They have no control over it. They're just born that way. But human beings who did these horrible acts in the 1930s and 1940s, many of them loved their families, were active in their communities, were active in their churches, and yet, nevertheless, went down a road that led to them performing some of the worst atrocities in human history. So we have to look inside ourselves and ask, where are we really similar to them? Turns out, very similar in a lot of ways. And we have to be very careful then, because if they were so different from us, we could be assured, of course, we would never do such things. But if they're really similar to us, we can't feel that comfortable. We have to be constantly thinking about where we might be going astray. Yeah, beautiful. I want to come back to that more general theme yes. in about another five, seven minutes. Let's uh, take the audience through the final chapter of that story. So where yeah. after Merrick is welcomed in, he's starting to feel that human connection with all of you. You've gotten non-attached to like where this goes, but you're just wanting to kind of by, you know, as a matter of principle, respect his dignity and kind of, you know, welcome him. So then how does it actually end up making him start to change his thinking? So before I answer that, just say that I don't want to oversell myself in saying totally non-attachment. I was certainly not expecting any great change after one dinner. But to be frank, after months and then years went by, it became very frustrating. Became very difficult to continue. And there were people who were going to those dinners that were very supportive at the beginning and who, by the end, were nowhere to be found uh, for that very reason, that it was very challenging to keep going even when it seemed like nothing was changing at all or maybe even changing in the wrong direction. So it takes a, a certain perseverance in these kind of situations that, that maybe go, goes beyond logic sometimes. You know, as far as the story, I think that there are really three key components to, to the eventual transformation. One, we've talked about at some length, forming human connections with myself, especially, and to some extent also, I think other people of color or Jewish people or, or other people who are not part of that white Protestant ethos that white nationalism uh, really supports as the, as the ideal and sort of denigrates everything else. But that wasn't the only part either. You mentioned Alison Gornick, who was both in the video from Goldman Sachs and also in one of the photographs earlier. She played an instrumental role. She was actually, it was kind of funny, she was one of my roommates. I had a four-bedroom apartment on the campus, and she was one of my roommates. She had been coming to these dinners that first year, year and a half, and then as soon as Derek started coming, she wanted nothing to do with it. She would stay in her, it was in her living room, it was in her dining room. She would stay in her room, she didn't want anything to do with it. But over time, without going into all of the nitty gritty, you can read the book, it has a story there, but she started coming out and got to know Derek. And she, her background, really, she was a student in psychology. She's actually doing a residency now at uh, Kennedy Krieger, part of Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And she took a tremendous amount of effort and labor in understanding why he believed the things that he believed. Now, Derek was always a very smart guy, is now, but he was then too. And it wasn't that he thought white nationalism was true only because, you know, his parents told him it was so. He said, oh, I have these studies, study A, B, and C, that show whatever he thought that they showed about, let's say, genetic differences in IQ scores or, or things of that nature. And he also wanted to be the best white nationalist possible. So if she came to him and said, actually, you know, this methodology is a problem for these reasons. He was eager to learn because he felt there was such an abundance of evidence in support of his ideology that, you know, he doesn't want to diminish his credibility by using bad evidence. And they became closer over time and continued having these discussions. Now, of course, as with many belief systems, if you start, if you, if you take out one leg from a table with a thousand legs, the table is just as sturdy as it ever was. 
But eventually, you take enough legs away, and the whole edifice collapses. And that was an integral part of the thing, transforming on an intellectual level why he thought the things that he was supporting were correct. And then there was a third piece, which was also very important, and I think which sometimes gets overlooked. You know, during that first semester in the school, when he was there, but no one knew about his background, and so he'd been able to have more normal interactions with the other students, he'd grown to respect many of them. And all of a sudden, when he comes back on the campus, these people who he'd grown to respect, who he thought were extremely intelligent people, were outspoken in saying that his ideology was not only intellectually wrong, but it was actually harming people in the community itself. That there were people in that community whose lives were made worse by his behavior, whose lives in some cases may be threatened by the people who he was riling up with his talks and ideology. And that was very different from just the anonymous hate mail that he'd gotten in his youth. Because these were people who he knew, in many cases people he liked, who were saying these things. And that forced him, in many ways, to be more introspective than he would ordinarily have been. When you put those three components together, you had a pretty powerful combination. Again, it wasn't instantaneous. This was, came back to the campus fall of 2011. Derek didn't renounce white nationalism until the spring of 2013. So there was an extended period of time. But I think that if you took any one of those three pieces away, the story would have had a very different ending. Thank you. Sure. I'm reminded of a quote from Mother Teresa. She said, you can do things I cannot do. I can do things you cannot do. And together we can do great things. And I'm noticing in your story how there are so many heroes. You know, there's you with the step that you took in a very pioneering way to bring him in, show him courtesy, establish that human connection, create that space, and then hope for good things to transpire and patiently wait. Then there is Alison who marshaled all the logic and the facts and the data and the research found a way to engage him, you know, all, all, on all of those kind of fronts in order to kind of open his thinking up from a very fact-based, logical, research-driven way. Then there is a school community that sort of like was a moment of truth for him, both by embracing him, accepting him, but then also pushing back and, you know, challenging him on what he was doing and his, his actions were doing to the community. And then there is Derek himself and his, uh, to your point, commitment to want to not just judge and reject views that were different from his, but to seek to engage and to offer curiosity and to learn and you know, seek to counter challenge, but then along the way, open his mind up to something different. And then with the community, recognize his heart is already with the community and he, he wants to find a way to foster bridges with them. Anyway, it just seems like there's so many heroes in this story. And if you could take any one of those things out, maybe, maybe you wouldn't get the full effect that uh, you guys were able to do. Uh, which is itself a great lesson in how all of us are bringing our piece to the equation as long as the right intention and space is created. So that's beautiful. Absolutely. Sometimes people ask me, they say to me, you know, because I do some of these talks and people come up to me afterwards and say, I think your story is so great, but I don't know any white nationalists. I don't have any dinner parties. I don't really see how I can take anything from the story in a practical way. But I think that that misses the point that it's not about doing one particular action. There's no blueprint for these kinds of things. But if we see opportunities in our lives to do things that will make a difference in the world, we have to seize it. We can't let it pass us by and hope that someone else will take up the charge. We have a personal responsibility. Yeah, that's beautiful. I want to reflect even more on that individual's question to you about the application of what we've just spoken about in all our lives, in our everyday yeah. moments, et cetera. So let's kind of broaden that lens even more in just, just a minute. Did you conduct a Shabbat service with prayers when Derek were, was there with you? Um, you know, was the Great question. So what I would generally do, I would be the only, I was having people over, as I mentioned, I was the only observant Jew. There were some other Jewish people. There were also 
non-Jewish people of both religious persuasion and atheists. And so I would pray generally by myself before dinner. At the beginning of the dinner, I would uh, do a prayer called the Kiddush, which is a blessing over wine, and uh, then a blessing called Hamotzi over bread. So there were a couple of prayers that were part of the dinner, but it was not less uh, like group participation, but everyone was very respectful during those services. Right, and okay. they were brief, so it's easier to be respectful during a brief service. What I really like about that is how you integrated your faith coming from a place deeply steeped, right, in, in your faith, in your practice, in your traditions, with uh, with an open space where all could be welcomed and all could be part of it and it didn't feel imposed uh, on, on, on anyone, right? And, and so I, I really like that because uh, so many of us at times hide, you know, that aspect of our identity when we are in this uh, milieu with um, people from very diverse kind of traditions and backgrounds and directions. Or we, we impose it in our lifestyle in a way that may end up creating some awkwardness or some divisions for people. So the idea of actually, you know, looking for that third space where we can be very authentic and true to our those values, those beliefs, those traditions that we very dearly hold on to, but also seek to do it in a way that is adaptive, that is respectful, that recognizes the conditions and the context one is in. So we're not stuck in a single groove, but we're able to kind of make it happen in a way that harmonizes with the world around us. I think that's what you've shown there, Matthew, and that's beautiful. I think if you look at a body and you say to the liver, you know, you're so much less important than the heart or the brains, you should be like, the whole body will shut down. The whole thing will stop working. There is tremendous diversity within every single human body. And some parts may think that it's less important or more important, but the whole thing is a cohesive, cohesive whole. So just because someone thinks differently than me or looks differently than me or is from a different place than me or what have you, it doesn't mean that they are not just as valid, just as valuable. I think that a central part of my thinking is that everyone is created in the image and the same God, that our souls are sparks of that creator. And as a result, we have to treat everyone with human dignity. To not do that is like insulting God because I'm insulting the creation. It's impossible. And as far as hiding parts of it, look, it's, unfortunately, religious persuasion, spiritual persuasion, is no surefire recipe for being a better person. There are plenty of people who become religious and are worse off for it. And there are plenty of people who become religious and use it to become amazing, spiritual, sharing people. So I don't think that nothing is a magic bullet. Things need work. I think if we just go into a situation and think, however I am, whether I come from a background as a religious Jew or I come from a background as an atheist from some other place or wherever, I cannot expect that I will be my ultimate self or as good as I possibly can be without really working at it. And sometimes going to uncomfortable places outside of my comfort zone do so. Yeah, that's beautiful. So I just want to like open us up on that line of thought. Matthew, like the broader message I hear in your story is that all of us from time to time are confronted with situations where we we have someone that we do not like who holds on to views or behaviors that are antithetical to things that we hold very dear. And this could be in an intimate relationship with a spouse or a boyfriend, girlfriend, etc. It could be in a more extended family relationship. It could be with a friend. So it doesn't even have to be with people that we traditionally might consider our adversary, right? It could actually even happen with people we consider very close to us. One of the things that pains me at times is when um, I'm speaking with, with someone and they're talking about, let's say their ex and the manner in which they're talking about that individual, you can see that there are a lot of emotions and feelings that haven't been fully processed and worked out here. 
because it's um it's almost like a visceral negative kind of reaction with yeah. which you're you know engaged with that person and i'm thinking over oh, wait a second this is a person that you have chosen to love at a certain point in your life they clearly have certain qualities that must have been incredibly uplifting and probably still exist in them much as they've probably done certain other things that have led to you feeling mistrusted or you know hurt or or, or what have you but but how could you how could you not retain you know that purity that connection you know if not overtly in terms of maintaining a relationship with them but sometimes it's possible and sometimes it's not but at least inwardly in the manner in which you seek to hold them you know at some level in high regard right and so um so i i want to propose and i want to highlight that the application of what you're saying is not just with those people in business who are locking horns with us and are playing politics with us or those people in society who are holding very different points of view than us or etc this is a conversation about things that are happening in our own homes with the people that we don't get along with and sometimes we write off and we don't make that space for doing the metaphorical shabad dinner that you did right with him again and again and again for year upon year just holding on to that faith anyway reaction starts matthew from that i think that many times we define ourselves by what we're opposed to and what we dislike and what we hate you know there's a joke that there's a jewish person is marooned on a desert island and there's no people on the island but there are trees and food and he realizes over some time he's not going to be rescued so he builds a whole village for himself and 10 years later a ship is going by and they see a fire and they come in it's amazing this guy is built one person a whole village for himself and they ask him sir what is what is this building here and he said that's my house it's where i sleep and he says what's this building here he says that's my synagogue that's where i pray every saturday and he said what's that building there he says that's the synagogue i would never go to you know people often define themselves in these ways how i'm better than other people or how i oppose other things but if everything starts from the same seed the same creator and even though we all are different and have of course our own beliefs and our own views and our own personalities they have a common root and not only that but there are things that are harmful in the world let's use the example of white nationalism because it's pertinent to the story certainly what i'm not saying is that everyone's views are equal and uh you know equally valid white nationalism causes tremendous pain for many many people in this country and around the world but to be able to look beyond someone's ideology and see who they are as a human being i think is the first step to being able to actually affect any kind of transformation because if i just come and want to show how right i am and how wrong the other person is then i can shout very loudly and maybe i will feel good about myself because i think i'm such a tough guy and such a defender of what's right in the world but if i care about the actual outcome maybe i've actually done exactly the opposite maybe what i've really done is pushed the other person further and further into their existing views which is the exact opposite of what the goal was i have to take my ego out of the equation and instead of asking what can i do to make myself look good for the people on my side wonder how can i actually try to make this world a better place where more people treat each other with human dignity powerful thought take the ego out take the instinct for elevating your own self out in some ways take your own self out you used a beautiful expression some time back about being being a channel when we are a channel we 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 can we can really eliminate personality and personal history and grudges and everything out out from the equation and seek to be just purely receptive right to whatever the wisdom of the universe is that is coming to us in that moment and we say personality where i'm certainly not suggesting is that we should become automatons stepford wife type clones of each other we all have our unique skills 
and our unique attributes and our unique opportunities. And we have to be open, though, to, I think, to the universe to see where we can best apply the skills that we have and the opportunities that we have to make the world a better place. Yeah. So, uh, Matthew, if like you were a um, proverbial like, student in a campus where Donald Trump was there right now, in the context of some of the recent happenings and some of the sure. ways in which uh, people have been a little bit challenged or disturbed by some positions that the president has taken, yes. what would be your attitude? What would be your counsel to all of us? So, hearkening back to what I said earlier, I, I would draw a huge distinction between embracing people and embracing ideologies. I'm not sure exactly which the commenter was referring to, but I think that we can look at people as human beings, even if they have ideologies that maybe we oppose, and not only oppose, but find abhorrent maybe, right? And that's not, I'm not taking a political stance in that, but to use white nationalism as, as, as a convenient target, because I think there's probably widespread agreement uh, amongst the listeners on where that stands. Um, it's not saying that white nationalism is okay. In fact, quite the opposite. I think it is uh, incredibly destructive force, and we shouldn't be promoting it. But when we look at white nationalists, the people who support white nationalism actively, and even more so, maybe people who agree with some parts of white nationalism implicitly, but who are not white nationalists, they're not activists, but they you know, are part of uh, many people who, who maybe share many common beliefs, by attacking them as human beings, and denying their human dignity, not only are we pushing them further and further away from the rest of the, the rest of us and probably further into the ideology we're opposing, but we, in some sense, give way and, and become more like the thing that we're trying to oppose. If the thing that we dislike about white nationalism is how it dehumanizes people who are not white and often not male and not of a very particular mindset, you know, it's turns out it's a pretty narrow list of people they're fond of. Um, and not only that, not only opposing them, but often causing you know, structural changes to make it very painful and very difficult for them to advance in society and to live their lives, sometimes even with violence. You know, we have to, I think, look at our actions when in some ways we become similar and start thinking about other people as less than human, even our ideological opponents. Now, there's another side of it, though, which I think is worth bringing up in this context, which is... I think very germane to the conversations we're having across the United States and in many cases across the world right now are about uh, race and the way that racism has unfortunately over the course of centuries seeped into uh, uh, many people's just natural way of thinking as though that was, you know, everybody's natural thinking that the sun should rise in the east. There's an amazing set of studies that was done many years ago called the Ash Conformity Experiments. And... It's really remarkable. What, what he did was he takes an ex experimenter, takes the one subject and a number of other people, but unbeknownst to the subject, they're all in cahoots with the experimenter. And he shows them all three lines and one line. And the three lines are of different lengths, one of which matches the, the, the standalone line, and the other two are much different. One is much longer, one is much shorter. And he goes around and he asks, you know, which of these lines matches the other line. But the person who's really the subject is arranged to go last. And what do the first people do? They give the wrong answer. It's really A, the first line is matches, it's you know, B. So by the time it comes to the subject, everyone is given the wrong answer. But he, with his own two eyes, can very easily see the correct answer. And amazingly, he almost always picks the wrong answer because he wants to conform with everybody else before him. But there's also an amazing permutation of this experiment which is if you have exactly the same setup, but 
one of those prior answerers gives the right answer. Someone breaks from the pattern of conformity. Suddenly, the whole power of that conformity is gone, and the subject will give the right answer. I think it's often possible when we're having casual interactions with people. As you said, sometimes there are sides of us that we don't want to bring up, that we're embarrassed about, or we may be averse to confrontation, and we'll let things go and make it seem as though the consensus is really something that many of us disagree with. I think we have to take it upon ourselves to be willing to be the ones who break that pattern of conformity and to, in some cases, say exactly what we think, even when it may not be perceived as being popular. I think that as soon as you do that, you enable a whole host of other people to do the same thing. And you can see that so many times when movements start with just one person or one small action catalyzes an entire region, entire continent. And I think that's a power which is, again, in many ways beyond logic. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you. You know, I, I, I'll give you a personal sort of uh, insight that I've recently gotten that relates a little bit to some of the conversation we just had, inspired by your own journey. So, so there's been this big movement recently, of course, uh, to get to eliminate some of the symbols of the con, you know, Confederacy, right, in, in sure. America. The uh, rebelling South that was seeking to preserve the institution of slavery and and uh, disunite from the you know from the from from America from the Union and uh, you know it makes complete sense and I've often over the last several decades as I've like gone here and there across parts of the South I, I've just been stunned and amazed that these Confederate flags and symbols and statues are still around and I, I just uh, has baffled me that. Um, yeah. These towns and communities haven't risen up and challenged against those. But then I, uh, I had this like insight come to me the other day that if I, if I was not who I am, an Indian immigrant in America, if I was actually born and raised in the South uh, as, let's say, a white American, uh, knowing that my forefathers are also from there, how would I feel knowing that some of my forefathers were actually slave owners? How would I feel about the fact that I and the rest of the world today really looks out, looks down at that institution, looks down at the cruelty and inhumanity of those people. You know, how would I feel about the fact that those are my ancestors? And would part of me not yearn to see something positive in them, to see that they were good fathers and mothers and, and everything and, you know, and all of that and, and, and feel a desire to legitimize my own roots and heredity just as much as any or all of us do. And if some feel the pain of their ancestors who were slaves, Maybe at a subconscious level, some of these other folks are actually hiding the pain that they might be feeling, knowing that this is the kind of crimes that their people conducted, right? Uh, at a time when the values are so different, where I would say most, certainly not all, but most of humanity has gone and transcended this institution of slavery. And just that little act of empathy, that little thought experiment to put myself in their shoes and just kind of think about it from that vantage point, just opened me up to say, like, maybe now I understand why some have been holding all to those symbols because maybe they were seeking to say hey all was not bad with what they were trying to do yes it was terribly so about the institution of slavery but maybe there were some other things that my fathers and mothers and grandparents and others were doing that that, that wasn't all that terrible and at least if nothing else while it doesn't change my opinion about the need to cleanse america of the, these these symbols of the confederacy um, it at least made me understand a little bit subconscious human needs and motives that it might be feeding I think that you touch on something which is, which is, I think, very critical. Many people living in the South have very strong views about the Confederate flag and statues and so on. And one of the things that's sort of remarkable to me is how, partially, I think, through the very prevalent de facto segregation 
that exists in uh, American society. It's hard to understand the other side's perspective. And not only that, but it doesn't seem like there is a tremendous effort to do so, especially coming from the other side. In other words, I think that there are many people supporting the flying of the Confederate flag and so on who make no effort to, as I'm, not, I'm not making, of course, a, a general, I, I don't want to say everyone, but there are many people who do, who are not making an effort to understand what it means to other people, right? Because as you've said, maybe there's an understanding of, of how they come to their uh, conclusions about the flag. But conversely, of course, imagine if your parents or, you know, of course, your ancestors were enslaved, put in bondage, brought across an ocean and unfathomably inhuman conditions and how a perpetual reminder and almost a glorification of that might make you feel. I'm not saying which side is right or wrong. I mean, I think that, as you said, you know, I clearly have a view. But beyond the particular case, right, which we can talk about, but I think that there's a message that goes beyond this particular case, which is maybe more uh, universal and generalizable, is when we associate with people just like ourselves, we become enmeshed in echo chambers. And unfortunately, I think social media has aggravated that problem because not only am I usually friends with people who think and feel the same way that I do, but I can even block you. I say, you know, I, ignore the, don't show me anything that Hitendra says. I don't like that guy. Um, and so we end up seeing the same thing again and again. We watch TV channels which tell us the same thing again and again. And we get riled up in a way that makes it seem like anyone who thinks differently from us is not just different, but they have negative motives. They, they're trying, you can see politicians and people talking about politics so often, unfortunately, talk about how the other party is trying to destroy America or destroy the world. I think that there are many legitimate differences of opinion in which course of action is correct in, in all sorts of situations, political situations and so on. But when we start to dehumanize other people, it opens the door to all sorts of horrible things. Going back to what I said before about what can enable ordinary human beings to behave like monsters, one of the most unifying themes is dehumanization. The Nazis, way before they started putting Jews into gas chambers, started promoting the idea that Jews were not really human beings. They were vermin. They were trying to suck life out of human beings. And you saw in the South, in many places outside of the South in America, racial minorities, especially black people, were treated barely better than dogs. Not from a position, I should add, of necessarily hate in the way that you or I might think that you hate your ex-wife, but almost that it just, it's just natural that the order of society is like that. There is a, a caste system in some sense. And when we start doing that, we can explain away all sorts of horrible actions towards the other person. Because just like I'm not upset when I kill a fly and I'm be horrified to think that I just hurt, much less killed another human being. It's an enormous gulf. To the extent we are doing things that dehumanize other people, we open the door to unbelievable tragedies. Look at what's going on in Western China right now. You have a million Uyghurs in concentration camps. It's not because they thought they, uh, people are doing that are thinking of Uyghurs as human beings just like them. Yeah, I think that's a very profound note to start bringing us to closure, Matthew. Uh, there's a lot of food for wonderful kind of, I think, reflection and thoughts here for all of us to take uh, take on. So uh, very, very grateful for um, not just like sharing with us that really powerful story of transformation and healing of those divisions that you helped forge with uh, Derek Black, but uh, the way you stepped out, anchored us in your core beliefs 
and offered us some um, thought-provoking ideas on the kind of society we want to create and the kind of discipline and patience it will take. So I'm going to uh, use this as a moment to give our deeply felt thank you and appreciation to you, Matthew, both for coming and joining us today and for the, um, you know, for the journey that you have been on that is shining such a light on the possibilities in humanity. I want to invite you to make a closing remark. Any any final thoughts you have, uh, that would be great. Sure. Thank you. And it's been a very great privilege to be on. And so I appreciate that. And as a former student, I'm appreciative of everything you've done for me in the past as well. I, I think we've covered a lot of stuff on this uh, in this talk, but I think that the recurring theme, and I'll repeat it because it's so essential to have it ingrained in all of our minds, is that even if we have an ideal, even if we think that the ideal treating of loving other people like we love ourselves really that golden rule that's as you mentioned at the foundation of virtually all religions around the world whether it's christianity or judaism or hinduism or islam or any other religion and also i should say at the root of many humanist and non-religious philosophies of life even if that ideal is beyond us we have no excuse not to treat other people with human dignity and if there's ever a point in our lives where we feel or we find ourselves trying to convince ourselves that we have such an excuse, that this person is an exception, this person is because of what they're doing, puts them outside of the pale of humanity. It is uh, something we have to reflect deeply upon. And, and the, the other point I'd like to make, you know, my, I mentioned my religious upbringing being very influential on. The other thing that was very influential was my mother. My mother was an alcoholic and she became sober when I was maybe seven or eight. And I used to go with her to open meetings in AA. Open meetings are meetings you can attend even if you were not an alcoholic. And I used to go with her when I was in elementary school, middle school. And I met people there who had been in incredibly dark places in their lives. People, I remember one man who had, while drunk, run over his son in the driveway, killing him. Incredibly dark experiences that are almost impossible to fathom. And yet so many of these people had transformed their lives, had gone from being destructive tornadoes to becoming beacons of light, making sure that other people don't have to experience the same chaos and suffering that they have experienced, becoming sponsors to others and so on. Despite having been in those dark places, no one's beyond the point of redemption. That's so powerful. Thank you so much, Matthew. I'm, I'm grateful and uh, wish you Godspeed in your journey ahead. Looking forward to more writings, more speeches, more um, more just like, yeah, the public expressions of your journey, you know, as you continue down this path of bringing such light and grace and love to the world. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you very much.